Welcome to the Justin Williams episode of Sigma Sports Presents Matt Stevens Unplugged. Beaming in from across the Atlantic Ocean, the multidiscipline 11 times USA national champion got up early and got online just for us, which is a real privilege. I made some sacrifices myself, though, including a trip to Poundland to source some American snacks just to level the Guess That Snack playing field. This is a real crapper of an episode. Crapper? <laughs> oh! This is a real cracker of an episode and one of my favourite guests we've ever had on the podcast. Get comfy and enjoy. Hello and welcome. Are you ready? Because it's that time again. Matt Stevenson unplugged by Sports. Justin Williams is one of the most influential and inspirational riders in the world at the moment. He founded the Legion of Los Angeles cycling team in 2019 to inspire hope and give riders like him a home to enjoy racing the races that they want to race. Over the past 10 years or so, he's fallen in and out of love with cycling and then back in again. His story is truly fascinating, but most importantly, does he wear his socks over or under his leg warmers? Let's find out. <laughs> And that's what happens when you start me off so early, man. <laughs> it is very, very early, mate. Um, yeah, well, first and foremost, mate, thank you, Justin, for coming on the podcast. Um, and secondly, I think, yeah, double thanks for getting up so early because it's just got eight o'clock in LA, isn't it? Yeah, it's just, I, you know, I've been getting up early, but, you know, with, with training and working, um, every once in a while I have a day where I'm actually really tired. And today I woke up and I was like, oh, <laughs> I'm so tired today, but... I had a, a big few days um, with training, plus uh, we're trying to find a service course um, and handling some other business. So uh, it's okay. It's okay to be tired every once in a while. Yeah. You, I mean, from from just from what you've said then and just following you on Insta and stuff, mate, you're a really, really busy guy. And we'll, we'll talk to that. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but... Sorry, just at the top at the top of my the top of the podcast, what I like to do, mate, if you don't mind, is just set the scene. So for anybody who's like wondering, yeah, um, where you are. I know you're in Los Angeles. Can you just describe, tell us where you are in the world and can you just describe what you can see in the room that you're doing this podcast for us, Justin? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to start. Yeah. Um, I'm in our little home office slash Zwift studio. So all I'm looking at, uh, I'm looking at Zwift setups, um, uh, SL7, uh, and and a driving simulator. Funny enough. <laughs> All right. Are you are you are you a big uh, a big gamer as well? Uh, I'm. I like gaming. I really like F one uh, driving and, and like project uh, cars uh, simulate car simulations. Corey is mm. more of the like full on gamer. He plays like Call of Duty, and I think he just got the new Assassin's Creed, which is uh, I think it's Valhalla or something, which is, looks really cool. So he's more of a like full on gamer. I'm I'm more of a poser. I'm the sometimes guy. Right, you're a, ca- a kind of casual gamer. Exactly. Yeah, I'm. A, my, my wife Holly is a massive nerd and gamer, but I don't <laughs> game. I'm a little bit older. I'm like I'm 50, but I love gaming. I'm just, I'm I'm in my upstairs loft kind of studio area, and I'm looking at a load of old games consoles. So I've got Nintendos from the 80s. I've got no the Atari, way. I've got you know the Atari 2000 or whatever it is from 1981. Yeah. I've got a wooden wow. one of those. Sega Mega Drives, Xboxes, GameCubes, PS2. Oh, wow. oh man. And we've got the American version of the Sega Mega Drive, which was called the Sega Saturn as well. 
Yeah, I remember those. I had I had one of those. That's amazing. That's amazing. Some kids will never know. Exactly. I mean, I, I like, but like I said, I'm not a gamer, but I really appreciate the aesthetic of the kind of hardware and just the game design and just watching people play. I'm, a, I'm, I am like a bit of a, a voyeur, really, mate. A bit weird. <laughs> No, I think that's awesome. I I enjoy watching Corey plays because he's actually good at them. I just get frustrated, and I, you know, when we were kids, I remember um, we used to play Madden football. Yeah, um, and that's when you know games were games were life. Uh, we used to play Madden football and uh, and Guitar Hero. And, and as soon as Corey started beating me at that, uh, I decided video games weren't for me and wanted to do something else. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, if you can't beat them, well, don't join them. Just go do something yeah. else. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I was uh, – when when video games – I mean, I played as a kid like on the Atari, like Asteroids, Space Invaders, Pac-Man and all those ones. But, when, but they're relatively simple games. But now the games – you need a lot of coordination. They're pretty skilled, yeah. aren't they, really? It's it's a different world now. It's they're full on simulations. Um, yeah, it's crazy. When I when I came to London, I was hanging out with Alec Briggs. Oh uh, yeah, he, we went to a, a, um, a arcade, and it had all the classic, really fun games. And like, there's something about those older, simplistic kind of versions of video games that like really create um, an ex- a different experience, right? It's like this nostalgia that comes with it. So. That's the kind of stuff that I'm into, man. The new stuff is like crazy, man. You got to know all the combinations and yeah. it's way too complicated. It's not what I originally started off knowing of games. So I think it's a little bit over my head at this point. <laughs> That's no, I'm, I'm, do you know what? Um, if we were in the same room, I'd high five because I'm in the, I'm the same, I, I'm kind of the same ideology. I know Alex, Alec really well. He's a great dude. And, and again, he's got his own team techers that, I think sh- I think we'll talk about that a little bit later, mate. But I think they share quite a lot of the same spirit and ideology of, that Legion do, don't they? Oh, one hundred percent. I mean, when I was starting off Legion, uh, it was I was spending a lot of time with Alec because we were Rocket Expresso together. Yeah, uh, and that was uh, two thousand eight, I believe. And I spent that season on my own. Uh, I didn't want the contracts that were presented to me just weren't very um, they weren't very good. Uh, so I decided I was just going to do something else. And I got to travel the country uh, and the world doing the races that I wanted to do uh, and, and living life and experiencing cycling from a perspective that I, I knew existed but never had experienced it from. Uh, and it changed my, it changed the whole way I saw uh, the sport and, and what it was capable of. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, teams like yourselves and, and team, and especially, you know, Alex's team, who uh, I know a lot of the guys and girls on that squad, it's a real nice mix of kind of riders who are really good on the track, accomplished road riders, um, you know, single speed kind of crit, um, yeah, fi- fixed gear crit riders as well. It's a really nice mix and they just seem to be having fun. And I think what you're doing, and we'll go into a bit more depth, we'll go, hopefully we'll go back in time a little bit, mate, but I think it's about remembering that the fir- the reason we all generally, and I would imagine that you're the same, mate, that we, we threw our leg over the bike for the first time as really young kids and raced our mates in the street, whatever bike it was, it doesn't matter. It's that sense of freedom and sense of fun. It, cycling is hard, it's hard enough. It's got to be fun, hasn't it? 100%. I mean, and Alex really inspired, inspired me to like really expand faster than I think I was, com- I was comfortable with. You know, like with starting a women's squad this year, it was, it was scary because we don't we didn't have infrastructure to to do it properly. And I just wanted to make sure that when we jumped into that um, that space that we really had our ducks in a row. Uh, and I just looked at what he was doing and I was like, man, if, he, if, if Alec is doing it, then 
there's no reason that I shouldn't at least try. Yeah. Um, because yeah, you know, a lot the girls that we have are, are amazing, amazing girls. Uh, and we want to provide this amazing future for them, but they also have like the best personalities, man. Yeah. Like they're like just really genuinely good, fun people. Yeah. And, and, and that's, and that's the thing, you know, a, a team, especially teams now in the 21st century, I think across all sports, obviously we're talking about cycling here, but you know, you've, a member of the team should be like kind of wholesome and kind of, I mean, when I say wholesome, I don't mean wholesome as in kind of corny. I mean, somebody who, who, who's fun, who's kind of bright, who's obviously super fit, but who also gets it and can engage with people and the fans. And obviously the commercial sponsor, the commercial element is, is kind of what drives it. We understand that, but it's not, it's just more than sticking a, a logo on somebody's jersey. They've got to kind of, they've got to live it. And when, when teams have an ideology, you want riders in that team are going to buy into that and kind of want, I don't, I, again, project something that other people want to be a part of. And that's what inspired us as, as kids to get into sport, whatever, you know, you look at somebody, look at your heroes who are inspiring people and you think, I want to be like that. I want to be part of that setup. I want to do that. And that's what, as a team and running a team, I'd imagine you want to try and encourage that, don't you? No, 100, 100%. I, I think it has to be that way. Um, you know, a lot of the issues we face with, you know, getting more people of color into into the racing side of it has to do with, it's not appealing at all. Why would a kid, um, you know, why would a kid commit to cycling when he can commit to football and all he need, needs is, is cleat, football cleats, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or, you know, his school provides the uh, the equipment he needs to, to do the sport. And, not, and then not only that, you look on, on the top level of football and basketball and these guys are, you know, driving the nicest cars and they're, uh, you know, living this really cool lifestyle. And I think that cycling is missing that, man. And I know that there's some guys that, that have it, yeah. but it's kind of this thing where people feel ashamed to, I think, show it off because, you know, it, it, it's just the culture of the sport. Yeah. I mean, we've kind of got a little bit of ahead of ourselves, haven't we, kind of talking about your team. But to what I'd like to do for people, I mean, a lot of people know you. Some people are listening to this podcast might not. So if you don't mind, uh, Justin, how about you, you take us back to when you were a kid and just getting into the sport? Because I know you, your your father, um, Kalman, was um, you know a great athlete, a great rider himself. And, and obviously your brother, Corey, we'll talk about him in a bit too. But how did you first kind of fall in love? And then obviously you fell out of love and then back in love with cycling. So I know you've got a lot to talk about. So take us back to when you were a kid. And your first kind of memories of riding a bike with your family and your dad? Yeah, I mean, I've been riding a bike for as long as I can remember. Um, you know, ever we had this massive yard that I grew up in in South Central LA, um, and it was connected to. It was basically a yard that was connected to an alley, and the alley kind of belonged to us because we had a gate that we could close. <laughs> it wasn't right. like a normal that you can just drive through. Um, the whole apartment building spanned spanned the whole length of the the, the alley. So I, I would race up and down that all day. I would, right. I would be riding my bike or playing football, man. Like those are the two things that I, I did, like just nonstop every day. Uh, it, it was my life. Um, and I remember when you know my middle brother CJ, we would just race around that. We'd go like, all right, like this this race is going to be ten laps, and then this race is going to be five laps. So from the be- very beginning. You know, bikes have been such an important part of my life, and my dad did it, but I didn't really understand like what he was doing. I didn't understand like that it was a sport. I thought it yeah. was something he just did for exercise. You know, uh, you, my dad wasn't like the coolest dude I knew, so I wasn't like looking to him <laughs> and go like, 
I wasn't looking at him to go like, yeah, I'm going to do that. But I think that there's something in every little boy that, you know, wants to follow in his father's footsteps. So um, Corey started riding around the alley. Like, I think Corey made my dad take off his training wheels at like two years old. Right. He was like, nah, he was like, my brothers aren't riding with, with training wheels. I don't want, I don't want those things to take them off. Um, and he was ripping around also. Um, and then as I got a little bit older, we started going to like training rides with my dad. And obviously Sunday was family day and it was a family day out at the races. And I think that's why that's so special in my heart uh, out here. We have a really massive, beautiful crit scene, um, but it's not like it used to be where, you know, families would come out and you would see like, you know, people having picnics and stuff. And, and, and it's my goal to really get it back to that. Um, but yeah, then, you know, once I started looking at it from that aspect, it was funny enough. I saw this little kid. His name was uh, Alex Garcia, and his bike was bigger than he was. And right. I, was like, <laughs> I was like, "Oh man, like that that little kid is doing it. He's pretty good. Like I can I can also do it, you know." And I had always wanted to do it. My dad wasn't really interested in me riding because he just you know either didn't see the commitment or he knew how hard the sport was and yeah. wasn't really um, on the same page as me as far as. <laughs> getting me, you know, an expensive bike and watching me do it for a couple months and then saying, I don't want to do it. Right. So finally, one winter, he left his bike on the trainer. And I was just, you know, I don't know, man, it was pretty known not to touch my dad's stuff. Like, obviously, <laughs> so he left his bike on a trainer because it rained for like half a day as it does in California. Yeah. Um, and I just jumped on it and I was just like, man, I just want, I just want to know, <laughs> like, you know, That's I've so been cool. going out I've been going out to like a bunch of group rides and one of my uncles were really short. So he used to let me do like a couple of laps around uh, whatever the course was. Like uh, yeah. one of the courses was uh, the Rose Bowl um, in Pasadena, California. And the other one was uh, Hughes Park in, in Long Beach. And he used to just let me do like two laps. And I think he was like a probably a 50 or 52. So it fit like just well enough where I was like, oh, man, and my uncle was into contracting. So he had this really nice KHS um KHS Elite, I think 1000 or something. Right. Um, and I used to ride it around. And I, like, so my dad left his bike on the trainer and I was like, I'm just going to go for it, man. Like, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see if I survive. Um, and then he just kind of watched me. And then, you know, he let me do like 20 minutes or 30 minutes. And I was like, all right, cool. And then That's the next so day cool. he left He left the bike on the trainer. And the next day I did it. And yeah, I got on. And then, you know, slowly but surely he started to like adjust the seat. He, you know, put a shorter stem on. Um, there's this Make, this is a junior team that was out here, which we're trying to jumpstart right now. It's called the Major Motion Cycling Team. Yeah. Um, and it was a couple of guys on that team, uh, Kenny, Elijah, and Rasan. You, you know Rasan really well. Yes, I do, yeah. Uh, and they just started giving me stuff, man. So, like, Elijah gave me my first pair of shoes. I still remember there were these Nike, there were the U.S. Postal Nike three-strap uh, uh, shoes, but they had, like, the carbon bottom. And, like, that was crazy at that time, you know? Yeah. That was like a big deal. I didn't even have a bike yet. <laughs> and I had like the toughest shoes you could get. Um, so, yeah, my dad made me spend like two, a little bit over two months, like riding the trainer, man, to show him that I was serious. And I got up to about an hour. Uh, and then he was like, all right, let's go for, <laughs> let's go for a ride. And he wow. took me on this like infamous, like, I think it's like 70 mile ride. Uh, yeah. and, and I didn't make it all the way home, which was pretty funny but you know i didn't know he basically left me on the side of the road because um, i was cramping up and he was riding slow and everybody had left him <laughs> and, uh, or left us 
and I was just complaining, you know, exactly what he didn't want. I was just complaining and I was like, no, like, this is not good. I want to do it. <laughs> okay. I, yeah. My dad did the same thing. I mean, uh, it's all kind of similar. Just eventually I, I, I was already riding a bike, like my little fun bike, but then going out on a proper training while was different. And I didn't really know. He didn't really yeah, tell me a great deal about what to do. He just let me do it and then just learn by my multitude of mistakes. But do you know what? That that little it's really lovely that that story about that you you're kind of aware of cycling and more through like fascination and watching other people ride that you decided to jump on your dad's bike. Because a lot of kids getting into sport or cycling, it's kind of pushed upon them. So it's great that you actually took it upon yourself to kind of see what it was like. And and my memory of getting on a big bike, you know, looking at when you're little and you're looking at a racing bike with proper big wheels, they look enormous. And there's yeah. just a sense of achievement of getting on the bike and actually making it move forward, isn't there? Yeah, 100%. And I think that's how we wanted it to be. You know, yeah. I don't, I truly, when people, when parents say like, you know, I didn't force my kid to do this thing, it was, it was exactly like that. My dad almost did the exact opposite. Like he was like, stick to football, stick to basketball. You're good at those things. He's like, cycling is really hard. He's like, it's really hard and it's, there's not much in it as far as like the celebrities you look at. So if you sure. want to do it, it's going to be your choice. and not going to be something that I, I made you do. That's, that, that's amazing. That's pretty, I mean, again, your, your dad's obviously from, uh, from, from Belize, isn't he? Yes, sir. Yeah. I mean, and he was, you know, um, he represented his country at the Pan American Games or his area at the Pan American Games. I, I know that from, from doing a little bit of research, but apart from, do you think he kind of reticently, reticently or didn't, kind of force it upon you because he had a bit of a hard time himself because, you know, we're, we're talking about underrepresentation in sport and we're, we're talking about the struggles that you've had as, as a black man in, in, in sport, you know, did you think your father was protecting you from that as well? Or was it purely just because the sport is so hard and then, and unless you're like top of the world, there's not a lot of reward. Yeah. I mean, in, in hindsight, I think that's, that's exactly it. I think that he had faced a lot of struggles and it's funny enough, we go back to Belize every uh, uh, every year for the Holy Saturday cross country race, which is like one of the you know biggest events in the country. Okay. Um, and yeah, and even just with that, like you know, we struggle a lot to to be accepted as far as like just people that have very neck, and that's in our own country. Um, wow. Where there's people that just have this negative kind of like outlook on us being you know Belizean a Belizean inheritance, but. Uh, from america right so there's this, sure. this disconnect and even that's hard and it's funny because like my dad dealt with that his whole his whole life and and i i see now when we go over there like how much of a struggle it must have been and how hard it must have been and yeah. i'm grateful that he's gotten any opportunity because it seems like you know cycling there's there's not a lot of accountability and and that's now to me looking like it's a global thing right like yeah. even in a small country like belize the cycling association doesn't carry that much accountability or they don't really, there's not a real, real oversight of what's actually happening. So I think, yeah, I think you're a hundred percent right. I, I could only imagine how that was magnified when he got to California and was trying to, to continue to ride and race. So, I mean, again, when I had my, that, I, I mean, talking to Rassam was, was, was really enlightening about how he used to, when he used to ride through his neighborhood to go on a training ride, he would put like basketball stuff over the top of his cycling kit or something, then get changed on the edge of the hood and then go out for a ride because he would get, he would get slated and like take, t people would take the piss out of him. I mean, what was your, 
because Rasan's only a little bit older than you, isn't he? But what was your experience once you finally started riding in your kind of neighbourhood um, as as a as a black dude riding a racing bike? Because it must have been it must have been you must have stuck out like a sore thumb, basically. Yeah, I think the difference between me and Rasan's situation is that Rasan was got into cycling because he got into he got in trouble and it was like something that was forced upon him. So I think that there was yeah. a little bit of shame in that. I think okay. my my story kind of um, is a little bit different because my dad my dad always did it and my my family is heavy into it. I remember when I would go to the barber shop when I was a little kid. My uncle used to have these massive trophies um, either in his garage and then or in his barber shop. Yeah. And I used to always wonder what they were. I was like, what wow. these old rusty ass trophies that this dude like <laughs> is like holding on to so hard? Like, what are they? Where do they come from? So there's a little bit more uh, history, I think, in my family as far as cycling goes. And my uncle had won the cross country race, right? His name is Rudy Miguel. Okay. Um, and he had won the, the race and, and his brothers had won the race and, and he's cousins with my mom. So there's a little bit more heritage there. So I was always... I was always hearing my uncles talk about it. Yeah. I was always hearing them talk about how my dad had it won it and how some of them had won it and like all this other stuff. And back in my day, this, this, and this, you couldn't hold, you know, all of that stuff. And it was like a, it was always a point of conversation in, in, in my house. So I had a little bit more, I was a little bit more proud of it. So when I started riding, I was straight into it. The only thing that I would do was I would wear, um, boxers under my bibs because I didn't believe that we would just wear you know I didn't I was like I don't go commando so why would I wear these these bike shirts without um without underwear my dad and and actually going back to the ride that's why my dad left me because he was trying to massage out my uh, cramps he like rolled my like leg up and I had boxers on he was just, <laughs> he was just so disgusting <laughs> he was like you know what just wait here and, and he oh, just no the shame like, the shame oh god man but I've gotten nothing but really good kind of feedback from people from the neighborhood I man that's that's the whole thing. Like the things you see on TV about the neighborhood aren't necessarily how it is. You know, there's sure. there's good and bad people in every walk of life. And when I would ride through my neighborhood as as a as a kid, and even now, people are just so proud that you know here's a black man that's doing something outside of the norm. Yeah. Uh, and I think that anything like that sparks this curiosity and hope yeah. uh, that there's something else out there that maybe we can used to to uplift ourselves and, yeah. and our culture and our community so i've got nothing i've never ever had a problem and i remember when i was in high school i came out in the la times and my, like everything shifted from that point like everyone knew me as the bike guy and the bike yeah. kid okay there were like so much more um uh, they were so much more lenient on you know me being able to turn an assignment slate and, and understanding my absences uh, and it was it was just all positive uh, for the most part. So that must have for you that must have really helped you because the fact that you you know people looked kind of looked up to you and admired what you were doing. Okay, you were doing something that a lot of people didn't do within that community, and it wasn't seen that seemed as normal. But the fact you felt supported must you must have really fed on that like psychologically it must have made you feel not necessarily proud, but. Do you know what? It must have made you feel kind of stronger inside and thought and even more determined to succeed. Yeah, I think determined is a perfectly good word. It's like a it's it's like a getting that positive feedback. You you get it in football and basketball also, right? But getting it in something that 
you only see white people in and like you don't you wouldn't expect black the black culture and community to understand yeah um, yeah it was really cool it was really really cool and there's a there's a really there was a really nice but small black community of cyclists and and there's guys that really had a lasting impact on me um just you know in who they were and how they dressed and how they spoke um and how they were you know and and it was it was it was a lot and it was positive and I just wanted to to make them proud and really just like you know be a good kind of be a good example of that community and and what they were capable of building I mean it's it is a wonderful story mate but obviously it it, it continues and and you became you joined rock racing quite young didn't you it's like 20 when you were like 17 for a couple yeah, of seasons right. racing on the crit scene and stuff like that in the in the, in the US that was all Rasan, man. When I was yeah. uh, when I was I turned set, I was turning seventeen. I wasn't even out of juniors yet. He's like, oh, you're gonna be a pro." Okay. And I was like, I was like, he just called me. He was like, "You're gonna be a pro." And, and Rasan really worked as a father figure to me uh, in those years, right? Like maybe seventeen to like twenty two, twenty three. Um, and it was like, yeah, he called me up. He's like, "You got a meeting with with my, the infamous Michael Ball." He's like, "Oh yeah." The address, you know, get there. So I got, I, I went to the office, and it was, of course, it was a model uh, sitting in my chair when I arrived. Jeez. And Michael made her move, and he's like, "Yeah, just sit down. Like I'm almost, you know, I'm, done, I'm almost done with her." Um, and he was just obviously she's getting a modeling contract, and I'm here to get a cycling contract. And we're sitting <laughs> in the same office in the same building, which is incredible. Especially, could you imagine for me, cycling was so skewed for me as a, as a little kid, as yeah. a younger adult. Um, I, yeah, that was my first experience was like what it was going to be to be pro. And then our first year, all we did was like go to parties, hang out with models. Um, <laughs> well, well, I mean, I think whatever you say about rock racing as a team, you know, and the ideology, I know it was a team that had, that, that had its own kind of problems and some questionable signings and stuff, but not all, of course, yourself included and Rassan. Yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was a disruptive team. It really did. People were like, you can't wear that kit in a bike race, man. You can't come over to Europe and race like that. What? And you can't hire him. And he was like, F- you, wasn't he? It was just like, <laughs> I'm just going to do what I want. So it was completely the opposite of what a normal, say a normal pro team would have been like. I think that's where a lot of my ideology comes from and a lot and it's it's shaped me in a way where I, I've always thought, why not? Why yeah. can't we be superstars? Why can't we act like superstars? Why can't we uh, have this culture and thing that's really cool? Because I, I've, I've literally seen it done. It was yeah. the introduction of my it was my introduction to professional cycling. So 17 sounds like you're racing for us. I was like, OK, great. Uh, I did. You know, in that year, I won my first uh three junior national championships cool. uh, in a rock racing jersey, which was amazing. Um, and then, you know, from there I went up first year under 23, won the criterium in my first year under 23, which was amazing. I'd be like Daniel Holloway and like Jake Keogh and like this really amazing group of dudes that I like had admired, you know? Yeah. And it was funny because this, the right before nationals, it was in Orange County. Uh, I was dating this girl from Texas and, um, and she had just come to California. She was going to spend the summer with me. And, uh, oh, <laughs> and no. I was like, nope, we're going to Wisconsin for, uh, for Super Week. And I was like, dude, oh. like, I, can't, I can't go. And he's like, nope. He's like, I'm coming to your house tomorrow. Like, this is like, <laughs> I, you don't have a choice. He's like, I'm coming to your house tomorrow. We're driving one of the Escalades to Wisconsin. It's me, you, and Sterling. And I was like, 
damn, I don't know how I'm going to tell this girl. Like she just came all the way to California and I, and I have to leave, but like, that's the way it was. I didn't have a choice. And like, honestly, um, it it shaped me for the better, right? Just being able to, uh, listen, right. And and not have, I wasn't one of those kids that had a a lot to say. I was like, well, this is what I have to do. This is what it costs. This is what I'm doing. And I think that there was something really cool about that, especially knowing now (laughs) how much, how much kids want say, um, and expect when, you know, you haven't really done anything yet. So we went to Wisconsin and literally do, I sat on the front in these hundred K a hundred kilometer criteriums for Hassan and Sterling. We got there the day of the race, which is crazy. We jumped out (laughs) of the car. We were late already. So they were like, yo, you got to register. We got to go register. You got to jump in the race. So I kid you not from the time driving across the country from the time we got there to the race was probably like 25 minutes. Jeez. 100K has a climb in it. I'm in a world of hurt. Legs, lungs, everything just not working properly. <laughs> Sterling ends up winning the race, and Rasan ends up getting in the red jersey, which was the sprinter's jersey. So we yeah. had two jerseys straight out the car, <laughs> and it was and it was me, a, a, a freshly, uh, a brand new, uh, just out of the juniors rider. Uh, and yeah, and from that from that day forward, I literally just rode the front for for a hundred k a day. Jesus, Jesus, that's a, that's a baptism of fire right there, mate. That that's a <laughs> that's a really really cool story. This, it's I I sometimes have dreams. Again, I'm not going to go off on too much of a tangent here, mate. So bear with me. Um, I sometimes have dreams, and it's a reoccurring dream, and I've had it for years ever since I started racing of getting to a bike race late, oh. and then not being able to pin pin my numbers on in time <laughs> and everything slows down because like pinning your number on that takes time man doesn't it you can't eat uh, that's but you've got to do it right otherwise you're not aerodynamic so i have these weird dreams and the rate everybody's on the start line i'm still pinning my number on then they start to ride off and then i have to end up chasing you know it's like and it happens all the time i still I'm, I've, I've been retired 15 t- 10 years or so oh, and i still get this dream it freaks me out that's crazy. That used to happen to me. Also, it's that <laughs> one and the one that you fall over. I feel like yeah. we should we should uh, petition to to end the numbers being pinned on, and, and guys should just get their numbers in their jersey, and that way we we could stop those those nightmares. I think. Do you know what? I think we after this pod, mate, we, we need to start the ball running with that. Get a hashtag trending. Um, no more no pins. I mean, I know no I know pin. a lot of uh, no, no paper. Save the trees. <laughs> <laughs> definitely well that's at least that's one thing that's definitely come out of this podcast that's concrete mate but uh but no that's um that's very very cool i mean and you obviously spent a couple of years with rock and then you you're kind of europe i mean because you moved on to trek livestrong in 2010 didn't you to be with uh, the, the axel merck's team uh that have yeah. spawned so many you know wonderful riders now especially this kind of era but what made you, apart from being a talented bike rider, at what point did you think you wanted to give Europe a go? Was that always part of your plan or did or did it happen kind of year by year and you, you become, obviously became stronger, more experienced? You had riders around you, Rasan and your father who believed in you. But at what point did you think, yeah, I, I want to go to Europe and give it a go? Yeah, I think when I was, funny enough, man, it, crazy story. Uh, after I won under 23 national, I think I did the tour in Missouri that year. And I remember like, feeling really good and i had i had beat ivan dominguez in the crit uh right. like a pretty good crit locally and he was in the race and my like cab was in the race I, I dude it was so crazy and obviously the distances were different but i didn't know i had like a crazy amount of confidence at that point i was a kid i didn't know any better and i remember at tour missouri in this i think it was the second the first stage i had 
uh, Hyro, I think it was Hyro, they had put it in the gutter and Sterling had, we had just made the group, right? But I had used so much to make the, make the front, group, front group. I didn't have any legs to sprint. Yeah. Uh, but the second day was like the, I think it was the Queen Stage, the second day. And I remember being like 10K out, like following Cav around. Like people must have been like, who the hell is this kid? <laughs> <laughs> I was just following Caver and I was like, today, I was like, I got Dominguez. Today is your day. <laughs> and uh, and I did that. And, and I think that was a turning point in my head where I was like, okay, like, you know, Dominguez wins like a bunch of Tour of California stages versus the Euro guys. I'm in this race now and I, and I feel pretty good. And obviously at 19 years old, um, to feel good in a race like that um, was a big deal. Uh, yeah. I thought that I at least had the understanding that you know what of what it would take to to race and win at, at that level sure um, and that's when i wanted to go over and that year actually i think the was it 18 I, yeah that was 18 so the next year i think i was on a national team i was yep. doing a lot of track stuff in madison stuff okay um, so i had i got to go over to europe to race on the road and i just did pretty well um and then the next year with live strong obviously it was like okay uh, this was going to be uh, kind of my big shot, you know, and, and when I was on a national team, I had did under 23 Roubaix. I had did um, a, a lot of a lot of cremesses um, and, and some other bigger races. So I knew I had a lot of work to do because obviously the field and the talent was just really strong. But I, I knew I could compete and I knew if I got to the line as far as sprinting, I would be really good and competitive. Sure. Um, so, yeah, that's when I was like, OK. What do I want to do in Europe? And, you know, obviously it was always like a, the world championship for me and watching like Tripolini and kind of having that bravado and that swag. Yeah. And I, I felt like I had that same swag and wanted to have that. That's who I looked up to and wanted to have that same swag. Um, Alejandro Pataki was like my favorite sprinter. Um, Robin McEwen and watching all those guys and kind of just the way they handled themselves. And I was like, all right, cool. Like crits are great. And yeah. road racing in America, it seems to be all about stage racing and climbing. I think I need to go over to Europe to really um, have a chance at, at becoming like a European pro. Sure. And so I know you, you it was an, an interesting time in the team, wasn't it, for you? I mean, how, let, 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 you know, what was the, your, your experience like? Because I know that you became a little bit kind of disillusioned, didn't you? Yeah, no, it was, you know, the Livestrong was very interesting for me. It, it, like, it was such a culture shock in coming from rock. You know, I, I came from rock where we were doing private jets. We had, like, a, a full bus. Yeah. Um, again, we're, like, just always – there was always models around. I went from that to, like, being in this, like, very old-fashioned, old-school kind of boring uh, team. Mm. And I was like, what – where's the where's the fun you know yeah, yeah. Where, where's the fun at like this seems like i had amazing teammates but they were all so serious man like i remember alex dowsett was like the the gold standard of like what it was to be a pro yeah. and he was like just always doing everything right man i remember thinking alex was a, a computer i was like this kid can't be real you know we're like we're like 21 22 i was like this kid can't be serious man um, and then we had um, Tim, it was a Tim Rowe. No, it wasn't Tim Rowe. It was a, a, an Australian kid. His name was Tim. Can't remember his last name, but same thing. So serious. And then we had Jesse Surgent. And we had uh, Sam Brewery. And then we had Taylor. And all these guys were like always so serious. And I was just so confused, man. Yeah, I mean, uh, actually, I've just fired up the team that you had. But you were like, you were. It was a young team, obviously. But you had 
this is the lineup. I mean, there's some big names in here. You know, Charlie Avis, Nate, Nate Brown, Dowsett, Ben King, uh, Benjamin King, um, Gavin Mannion, Taylor Finney, uh, Jesse Sargent, if you just mentioned, and then yourself, t- t- and then uh, Iggy Silver and, uh, and Timothy Rose. I mean, there's some real names amongst that. I mean, so did you feel, I mean, did they make you feel kind of welcome or was it, were the guys good? It was just, was it more like the environment and the, the kind of, was it just such a big culture shock you didn't feel you fitted in? I mean, what was it about it that you kind of struggled with primarily, do you think? Um, I think it was just the understanding that, that, that cycling, that's what cycling was. Sure. Okay. Rather than like what I thought it was, I, I you know, Jesse was always like, Jesse Taylor was one of my best friends at the time. Yeah. Um, and he is from San Diego. So me and him were, you know, we grew up together. Um, uh, but Jesse particularly always like would pull me aside and, and like really give me understanding. Um, and like, I, I always love that guy for that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but it was more like I think the other guys were really more focused on getting to the next level, and and sure. that was the thing with that team is that everyone was so good. Like I think Jesse had already had an Olympic medal at that point. Yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> we're, I'm on this team with this guy, um, and I think it was just mostly my maturity level and my understanding of the sport just didn't align at that point, and it was sure. just a, it was just a missed opportunity, honestly. Yeah. Um, you know, I was still trying, I was still chasing girls and trying to live this lifestyle that I had learned on rock. Right. Um, and you know, the, 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 the gap of how far I still had to go, uh, wasn't as apparent to me as it should have been. And it wasn't explained to me. I think right. at that point, like all management expected you to be like Dowsett. I think they expected you to be a machine and be serious and be like, if this is something that you want to do, then you need to be on this page. And if you're not on this page, then we'll move on to the next person yeah. that we think is. It didn't yeah. matter how much talent they think you had. It didn't matter how much talent you think you had. It was more about fitting the culture and, and doing what they expected of you yeah. and them just expecting you to know what that was. Yeah. It's, it's a, it is interesting, isn't it? I mean, um, and at, at the kind of continental level, it's a really good um, – Obviously, you got you seem to get on with the guys in the team, but they're very focused. And I think in Conti teams, especially teams, Conti teams were the focus of developing youth, which that one was. I mean, the oldest guy was Jesse at 22. You're all young guys, 19, 20, 21. And um, in teams like that, from, from my experience of kind of observing bike racing for the last kind of couple of decades, there's an added element of individuality you think it's a team but all the guys there want to get to the next level they want to get to pro conti then they want to go to world tour straight to world tour so the kind of atmosphere within teams like that although you might get on with guys it can be quite cutthroat and everybody's like so singularly focused because there's only x amount of contracts at the next level up for grabs so there's an inner there's competitiveness in the bunch but you're all riding in the same jerseys but quite often there's an added element of competitiveness within teams as well at that level yeah, no, 100%. And it was something that I did, like just wasn't prepared for. Yeah. I, I literally just wasn't prepared for it because on, on Rock, I had been the baby and everybody had kind of like like nurtured me as far as like, you know, obviously it wasn't easy. They were like, don't do this, don't do that. Um, but it was definitely like they had my best interest in mind. And then I st- stepped into this pit of like yeah. vipers where everyone was like not only as talented as me, if not more talented. Um, they they had this mindset that it was it was like we're, we're, they knew exactly where they were going. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. I mean that experience. I mean, you didn't kind of race. I mean, you, I believe you you went 
came home, didn't you? And then went to college for a bit and kind of refocused for a couple of years. Yeah, no, um, we got to a point where I didn't get to, I, I was having the best like season of my life when I was on the strong. I, I had, that was the first year I ever had a coach. I was working with Jim Lehman out of, um, out of, um, uh, Car- the Carmichael uh, training uh, coaching thing. Okay, Chris Carmichael, I know, yeah. Chris Carmichael, yeah, he has a training, uh, he has a coaching uh, company and I was working with one of his guys. It was the first year I had a company. The whole, the years that I won nationals, all that stuff, I had I had like a coach on the track, but I never had a, ro- a road coach, right? I never had a full structure, f- full year off-season base miles interval. I, I never did that before. I was literally just going off of talent. Yeah. Um, and that was the first year I had a coach. And I was like, I, I still to this day feel like I was, I was like probably the strongest I had been. Right. Um, I had, yeah, it was, I had gone from, that was the year that rock fell apart. So I had gone from not racing at all. I didn't do a race. Uh, I didn't do a race. The year I got onto Le Strong, I didn't race um, from May of the right. year before. And then my first race was Tour of Qatar. Yeah, <laughs> my Jeez. first race back to racing was Tour of Qatar, and I hadn't had any racing under me in May because the team wow. was falling apart. Um, and then I ended up doing like pretty good there. I was like, you know, trying to crack the top ten, trying to c- crack the top ten. But I was like, not only racing at a distance and a speed I had never raced before, and it is very different uh, riding in, especially at Tour of Qatar. I remember looking down and doing forty. We have like fifteen k to go. And I was like, how are we riding 40 miles an hour with 15K to go? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, there's a massive tailwind, but, um, you know, I was still on the 52 or 53, you know what I mean? Where I look over at, like, Bonin, and he's on, like, a 55 or something crazy. Jeez. So I was trying to crack the top 10, and like, I think Taylor was also doing really well. Um, so, you know, we kind of just tried to find each other in, in the end. Um but yeah, that was my experience. I went from <laughs> doing nothing, sitting at home, uh, but I had a coach for the first year and I was actually getting out and, and putting in the training. Uh, sure. and, and I got to tour Qatar and I finished the tour Qatar and, and then got some decent results. So you would think like something like that, if, if people understood what the story was, that they would understand that there was something special there and all it needed was a little bit of nurturing and work. But I never really came, you know, sure. it was... I spent a lot of time at home kind of doing my own thing. Uh, and then I just got tired of like lapping the field in local races and like <laughs> winning off the right. front. I was a sprinter, right? So to have the to have the power to do that, um, there was a point where they were like, you're, you're not going to go over to Europe. We're not going to send you to Roubaix. And like my whole year was based around Roubaix and, and Crit Nationals. Sure. Um, and I didn't go to Roubaix and it kind of just, I just, just was done. I didn't understand, you know, why I wouldn't be able to go. I had in that type of race, I had been better and I knew I was better than a lot of guys on the team. Um, and and I just didn't get to go. So then we got to nationals and they were like, oh, well, you know, we, we, we put, you know, four guys in the top 10 in the time trial, but we don't think we can control the crit for a field sprint. So we're not going to ride for you. And I literally like it just cracked me. I was like, this is bullshit. I was like, I'll yeah. control the field myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I went out, and I kid you not, I think that was probably the most ridiculous race I had. I literally destroyed the field on my own. Um, and then Ben King, a USA, came up to me, and he was like, hey, man, I'm going to work for you. Let me know what you need. And I was like, okay. And and I just outsmarted myself. I thought I was going to, like, let him off the front and then, like, have people line it up and try to chase him down sure. or chase him down. And we just never saw Ben again. <laughs> oh, so I ended up- so I ended up getting third 
Uh, and that was the year that Ben won the crit, the road race, and then he went on to win U.S. Pro that year. So he wow. was on form, uh, yeah. but he, he came and helped me. He came to help me in, in the latter part of the race, but that was like the only help I got. Yeah. Oh, fair play to Ben. Ben's a nice guy. I know Ben very well. He's a good lad, isn't he? Yeah, he's amazing. He's a nice dude. But then, okay, let's kind of forward one a bit. You, you came back, I mean, and then you did, you went to, back to college. I mean, you had yeah. a couple of years where you weren't doing so much. I mean, what what I kind of want to know is and get a sense of is at what point did you fall back in love with wanting to do something, wanting to, the, all all your experiences that, you, that you've had as a rider, you know, dipping your toe in and, and trying trying it in Europe didn't quite work out for whatever reason. And then wanting to set up your own team um, uh, that's led to, to, to the Legion of Los Angeles now. Talk about that little period. Yeah, so I got back. Uh, I wasn't going to be re-signed to Live Strong. Um, I didn't know. It felt like I was kind of blacklisted at that point. You know, like I, teams like weren't even responding to me. And, and, and mind you, I had still won like 12 races that year. You know what hmm. I mean? So it was kind of weird. I had one. I had one the tour. Cal- the tour of California that year was uh, had the Sacramento stage, and they had a local race there. Uh, and I had won the local race. I had won every prem at the local race, and then I had won the race with the same finishing speed as the tour of California sprinters. Wow! Wow! Okay. Um. So so I had done that, and then you know got back and, and couldn't find a team, and I was just like, ah, this is ridiculous. I'm just gonna. I'm just going to go to school for graphic design. It's something that I had been teaching myself, Illustrator at the time. So I was like, I'm just going to do it. I got a job. <laughs> it, was, right. it was great. Yeah. And I had committed to like, uh, I think it was um, Cash Call at the time, which is now Elevate KHS. I had committed to them. They're a pretty local team, but they, you know, Paul Abraham uh, was really, you know, really good and excited and had good energy. And I like really liked him. So I was like, all right, like I'll just ride, <laughs> like you know, like, I'll just ride it and we'll see how it goes. Um, so yeah, that was, that was really, yeah. I just wasn't really doing it seriously. I w- was going to school. Um, and then I had gone from there, me and Paul had a falling out. And then I had gone from there to MRI with Corey. And it was yeah. like, I was with Corey for a half year. And that was like one of the only years we got to race together. Uh, I was with him for a half year and that was all right. But the management there also was like very restricting, very like, you know, it was a master's team. There was a master's team. Uh, and had a, and it had an under twenty three team connected to it, and I was basically leading the under twenty three team. Okay. Um, but they were using all the funding for the masters team. So when I came in, like you know, <laughs> big idea, Justin, that I am, I was like, I want to do this, 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 <laughs> and the, and the guys running the team were like, Hey, you need to you need to calm down, man. Your budget is like <laughs> like ten grand. Like relax. Um, right. so that was kind of disappointing. And then I went from there to Estella's. Uh, and then I was on the Stellas for a couple of years and same kind of thing. There was a guy there that was running the team that kind of just made cycling suck, man. He was just like yeah. really, he was just like really jaded and, you know, not having a good time and he was about to retire. And so he, I felt like he kind of took that out on the team. You know, he was like, you got, he had this very, you're, you're all very ungrateful um, right. kind of attitude and, and, and it would show. So that ruined my year there. That first year, the next year I had like Adam Myerson, who was just like, you know, he's a great person, but, you know, racing with him as a teammate, I like really struggled because, you know, he was someone that could finish in the top five, but he wasn't going to win. And I was someone that I thought could win on a good day. And it was never, i never felt like there was that level of respect to like give me the reins. And, and I didn't understand why he would even be put above me because the year before, again, I had a one, like 
10 races. I had beat Daniel Holloway in, in the time where Daniel Holloway was unbeatable. He was like taking on the whole UHC team. Right. Um, so next year, that was it. And I was just getting worn down and tired of it, man. Like, Corey had came over to Estella's halfway through the year, and I thought they were going to resign him. Uh, and we were going to get to be teammates. And obviously, like, racing with your brother, there's nothing really like it. Yeah. Um, that level of trust, you can't really – you can find, but it's just not the same. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to get to race with my little brother. Didn't happen. They didn't resign him because they didn't like him, which is mm-hmm. like a trend in cycling. It's all – boys clubs because again no accountability right imagine if the lakers only hired people that they liked yeah, <laughs> and they geez. weren't winning any games yeah 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 um so from there it was just team after team after team we went to silent same kind of thing happened and i was just done after that man i was like you know what like this is super hard we're all racing out here for you know like 12k if anyone's even getting paid the the, the, yeah. the wages were just so bad I was like, I don't have time for this shit. I can make this in prize money on my own. Yeah. So I just like stopped and I had started to realize how valuable I was as an individual to sponsors. And I was just like, I'm not doing this anymore, man. I'm not taking these contracts to be treated like a, to be treated like I'm nothing, to be treated like I'm lucky to be here or to be treated like, you know, like I'm uh, uh, expendable. You know, sure. So that was that was it. I just I basically got another contract in 2008 for 12 grand that I wasn't going to take. Um, and I was just like, I'm going to do another year. I'm going to have fun with it. I'm going to do races that I love to do, and I'm going to do it with freedom. And I think that was the first step outside of the box that has led us to where we are today. Where I was like, you know, that experience changed me forever. It was like, oh yeah. Like bike racing is amazing and traveling the country is amazing and going to like these cool restaurants that you see on like, you know, the TV shows that they do like, they do like uh, the TV shows, like the food places. Yeah. Getting to go to those were amazing and hanging out with friends that I haven't seen without stressing out about what my team manager is going to think was like incredible. So I was doing all of this, traveling the country and then entwined in all of that, I was getting this new experience of Red Hook, which was like incredible and uh, and had this demographic that was way more like I was, and and sure. and had the same culture that I had grew up in. And it's more of a, it's more of like um, an underground kind of culture when you compare like pop music to like the underground or, or rap scene or indie kind of music. You know, it's kind of it. I, th- that kind of red hook scene is is super exciting, and it attracts a certain. I think you know, cycling is as you know is massively tribal in many ways, but. Um, there's also this convergence and this overlap, isn't there? And um, you see the track riders going over and doing that and road riders. And that clearly, I can see why that appealed to you. Yeah, it was incredible. And and doing it, it felt like skateboard culture where it doesn't matter. Yeah. It didn't matter who you are or what you did. As yeah. long as you were committed to the to, to Fixie, you're yeah. good. And people yeah. accepted you and loved you. So when guys came over that were really good at, like really good at cycling and really talented in cycling, but committed to the culture you could see like there was this like level of love and as- admiration and it was yeah. from a culture that wasn't so stiff or like judgmental yeah um and that was everything to me man i was like this is what cycling should be right so i had yeah. this incredible year of traveling and hanging out with these people that i love and meeting new people and also having this understanding that cycling could be different than what i had seen yeah yeah do you i mean 
I did sort of quite a direct question here. I mean, your, your experience because of the, the kind of cultural differences, or not so, not so much the cultural differences, I guess, but your kind of thoughts about what pro riding would be. I mean, you kind of didn't kind of take to it. I mean, why do you think? Do you think it's what? Why do you think we don't see many um, black guys and, and women racing? I mean, do you have an answer to that question? I know that. A lot more brands now are kind of ch- changing attitudes. It's very late in the day, but it, it is happening, making it far more inclusive. But do you think there's other elements of cycling that are doing it right and that, that road cycling should kind of look to? Or do you think that cycling as a whole has a problem? No, I think that the, the sport is just structured in a way. And this is going to be hard to change because like we, we saw even at the Tour de France, like there was nothing done as far as like the injustices done around the world as if they only happen in America. And yeah. I think that, you know, systemic racism is, is, is massively a problem in America, but we see it around the world, yeah. right? There's still, there's still countries being kind of colonized in a way where they're being used for their resources at the expenditure, at the expense of their, uh, of their people. Yeah. Um, so I think that it's just a culture that's already set that people that come for come from where I'm from, you're not going to get a lot of people that buy into that. You're yeah. not going to get a lot of people that want to change everything they know about who they are to conform to being a, a professional cyclist. And, and my, my issue with that was, is I, I saw what the cost was versus what some of the best guys were doing, sure. you know, or, or how they were living. And I just wasn't interested yeah, like if I was gonna suffer like that, I would rather go suffer playing football or basketball, which is like what we see and is what we've been talking about. It's like, how much of yourself are you gonna give? How much of your dignity are you gonna like, you know, let go to yeah. become to be to be a professional cyclist? And I'm not saying that in a way that like everyone that's doing it is 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 giving up their soul to do it. I'm just saying that from my perspective and where I come from, and we talk about the whole race issue, you're not gonna get a lot of black people that are gonna sacrifice those things to, to race bikes it's just not it's just yeah. not going to happen yeah so i mean in, in, in what you're doing i mean reading about your team and, and following your team for the last kind of well all through lockdown and the back end of last year and what you've been doing you i mean you still you clearly still love racing you wouldn't be able to do what you're doing you wouldn't be able to just race your bike and even train to the level that you train at if you didn't like like racing but it seems through the ideology let's talk about the specifics of the team first and foremost it's a team that I see wants to be inclusive and give people an opportunity, but also redefine the experience of, of what road racing is. Yeah. Redefine what success looks like. Um, Yeah. uh, yeah, It's, you know, it's, it's one of those things where um, it's one of those things where I've seen a lot of my friends quit. Right. You know, we're we're now talking about how do we get more people of color into the sport, but I've seen so many people of color leave the sport. Right. So like a lot of my friends have quit cycling and uh, I just wanted to create something that kids that have that same kind of upbringing and background can look forward to. They can look yeah. up to because, you know, Europe is the the standard of success right now, but it can't sure. be the only standard of success because I just didn't want to live in Europe. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, like I just did. I did. I grew up. Family is extremely important to me. I just didn't want to leave my family behind and spend, you know, I don't know how the Aussies do it. They're amazing, man. Like, <laughs> incredible people because I don't know how you leave your whole family I, I, behind and just living, you know, you know, somewhere in Belgium um, training and, and racing. I, I just couldn't do it. So 
we just wanted to redefine kind of what success looked like looked like in cycling in America, right? Sure. We wanted to basically create this space where, you know, you didn't have to go over to Europe to to have something to look forward to. It, every the only example of success wasn't going to just be Europe for us, and and that's what we yeah. really set out to build. Okay. And and it, and you seem to be a lot of ha- having a lot of fun doing it. I mean, um, the kind of profile of the team, what you've what you've been doing is, is is finally kind of paying off, and you're gathering a lot of momentum. And obviously, you're registering to be continental for, for next year, which is fantastic news. That's very much against against my. Uh, <laughs> that's not what I. That's that's all, Corey. I, I didn't really want to do it. Look, at the end of the day, like, okay, <laughs> sorry, sorry, I've not trodden a nerve there, have I? <laughs> no, no, no. At the end of the day, like I really love cycling. It's changed my life, man. The reason that we're trying to inspire so many other people to to be a part of it uh, is because of not only uh, the bike and the freedoms that come with the bike, but the networking that can happen yeah. within the sport, the jobs that are available within the sport. Like you know, when you grow up within the inner city, a lot of the times you, you you the path to success are narrow, right? Yeah. And I think in cycling, it's it's opened my mind and given me so much perspective on how much possibility there is. And if we could pass that to just a few people, man. Like that would be that would be successful, right? That would yep. be a win. Uh, and that's all we're trying to do. We're really just trying to kind of garner attention for this beautiful sport that a lot of people don't understand and is misunderstood. Yeah. Um, and just give them bite-sized pieces of how it relates to them in, in a way that looks like, right. looks like uh, something that they would do. It looks it's, it's from the perspective of someone that maybe have come from the same place that they've come from. But to, to see, I mean, but what an example to know you're a multiple national champion. You're wearing those, you're rocking those stars and stripes now, you know, as a black man on a, on a bike with the American, I mean, with the American flag on your, on your Jersey, what more of an inspiration, having fun doing it differently. I, I don't think you could do it in, in much more of a better way. Cause it, you know, you, you do things differently and the only way you're going to affect any sort of change in any industry, whether it, you know, not so much an in industry, cultural, cultural change only comes by pe- people being brave and being disruptive as well. And uh, yeah. I think you're doing it. And I, from what I can see, you, you're, you're doing it exceptionally well. Um, and, and people are just it's and it, and it's not just the political. You, you genuinely ma- are making people smile as well. I mean, this isn't just like people paying lip service. It's it's good. What you're doing is wonderful. No pressure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, and that's you know, we genuinely love what we're we're doing. We gen we genuinely love cycling and respect cycling. You know, just because we don't want to do it in a way that it's been done, it doesn't mean that we don't have an appreciation for the culture. Man, we, sure. we love the tour. We. You know, a lot of things that we do are based on, you know, the information and, and knowledge and history of what we know of the sport, but based on how it, how it can relate to people like us. And like, that's that's what we're doing. We we love what we do. We, you know, we just took we took a lot of the things that you see um, that are successful in the mainstream with football. And that's why we have a team name and we're trying to, like, you know, figure out what we want to do as far as team colors. But it's like these things that people can hold on to yeah. you know what i mean like there's you know if you have there's com- there's elements to, to creating a, a successful fran- franchise right you got to have something that people can hold on to and that stays the same forever we talk about this all the time with teams that um 
switch their names every time they get a new title sponsor and how that doesn't work because then people look back at their team, quote unquote, and the team is different or it doesn't exist anymore. And with Legion, like the Legion is always going to be Legion, right? It's always going to be a thing. It's going to be something that you can teach your kids about and, you know, they can also fall in love with. So that's one component is the, the stability. The next component is having athletes that people can love having athletes that people can get behind and be inspired by their stories because, you know, people don't fall in love with brands. They fall in love with stories. They fall in love with the feeling that these people give them. So once you have an athlete that's capable of like touching people in a way um, that, that gets them to feel, then they fall in love with the brands that they're attached to. And that's what we've been preaching. (laughs) You know, that's kind of the, the, philosophy we've been preaching because we're not I'm not a genius I haven't figured this out I've just literally studied examples of this right the more yeah. you know uh all of the examples are out there yeah no it's 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 wonderful to see unfold and this has been we're kind of coming towards the end there's a couple more little questions that I want to ask you and then towards the back end of this of this pod I'm there's going to be uh, a section called guess that snack it's a little bit of a snack based quiz so sorry <laughs> to change the subject so dramatically but there's the there's one point that i want to more of a fun question really you know you, l- looking at it's kind of the fashion side and um because i experienced something quite profound i think it was last year when for the first time i'd i can't i think it might have been matthew van der Poel that i'd seen and some of the cross the some of the cyclocross riders and i'm wondering whether you can remember the first point that you thought wearing your socks over the top of your leg warmers was a cool thing because before when you were racing in 2010 i can guarantee it was underneath wasn't it everywhere under but at what point did you think yeah this because it works doesn't it i love it i mean and i'm and i'm old and i you think it looks great over or under you were just so, over the leg warmers yes yeah, so of socks over the leg warmers yeah because then you can see your socks because socks are a big like socks are a big thing now it's like it's literally <laughs> one of the only things you have that you can have like in the past has been like one of the only things you could have individuality with. Right. And that's where we're kind of, we started like Corey would always, Corey would buy a bunch of Stan socks when they, that company started and they would do crazy socks. Um, And I think that, (laughs) so there was this individuality that you could have in that with, within uh, being, you know, you know, the, the carbon cutout of your teammate. Um, But I think for me, I do both. Honestly, right. I, I, I've ridden a lot of track and on the track you wear the leg warmers over. So because you got to take them off, they're literally just on yeah. like like heating your tires up in like a motorcycle on a motorcycle. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Like, they, so you wear them over and I would wear them over my bibs and over my socks. But when I'm out on the road, it's just a cleaner, more beautiful aesthetic, I think, to have them under. It just like looks I, it just looks better. Fair enough. I mean, you've very eloquently uh, explained that that kind of argument because I know it's a it's a bone of contention for many many bike riders across the world, um, and um, it's caused you know quite a bit of friction within teams and within relationships as well. So, <laughs> so me and Sean argue about this every time we have on, uh, leg warmers on because he wears his leg warmers over his socks and I wore them under, and I'm like. I understand that you're trying to be efficient, but you're not going to take them off. So, why does it matter? <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Well, I'm going to I'm going to um, start this quiz now, mate. I'm just just bear with me for one second. I'm just going to reach down onto the floor of my office and pick up a plate of snacks, and I'll then <laughs> explain exactly what you need to do. Bear with me one second. Right. Okay. 
just bring those back in and I'll just bring my little pop shield back into play. Right. Okay. Justin, what this this is called Guess That Snack. And and Niall, can you just roll the intro, please, mate? Guess that snack. Guess that snack. Oh yeah, guess that snack. <laughs> that was great. Cheers. That was that was Cecile, the, the voice of Cecile Utrop Ludwig. Uh, doing that for me. We roped her in uh, um, earlier in the year to do that. So she's done a cracking job. But basically, um, Justin, guess that snack is is very, very simple indeed. I've got four common snacks here. And what I've done to help you a little bit, I've Americanized it a little bit because there's obviously... (laughs) There's a bit of overlap, isn't there, in, in the snacks that we – there's a lot of UK snacks that you wouldn't really have heard of, but there's a nice overlap. So I think I've got – I think I've been very fair in the snacks I've got. I've got four snacks here. I'm going to tell you what they are, and then in a random order, I'm going to eat the snack, crunch it near the microphone, and based <laughs> on the sound, you you have to then guess the snack. You got that? Yeah. I can okay, I- mate. I think I need to get Alec, Alec on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> you can get him on the phone if you want. That'd be bizarre. Um, but I'm, I'm going to um, I'm going to list the snacks first for you. Okay, so you're clear on what you're going to be listening to. All right. So first up, toffee popcorn. Okay. Toff, toffee popcorn. Yeah. Delicious. So it's like a, it's normal popcorn, but like coated in like toffee flavor. Okay. Yeah. That'll be great. That's those. Then we've got. Cheese Cheetos. <laughs> nice. So we've got a little shop around the corner that does American snacks. So I, I went big on the budget, mate, and I spent two pounds, which is about nearly three dollars, okay, on, on snacks for this show. So you know, you'd be thankful for that. So yeah, Cheetos. Uh-huh. Okay. I've also got Pringles, original oh, flavor. Nice. Okay. And the final snack is an absolute classic. It's a British brand, but it's just a classic corn tortilla chip. Okay, so oh. nice and plain, no no flavours, but I know a real common a common snack that I, I'm sure you're familiar with the sound of. All right, mate. So, and and all the apart from the the tortilla chips, all of these packets have remained unopened. Therefore, the the integrity of the snack itself remains intact in terms of the crunch. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, mate. Good. Well, let's. I'm going to open the. So, so this, this one here. There you go. That's the Pringles, freshly opened. Okay. <laughs> Cheetos. They're opened. Okay. And finally, the popcorn. All opened and all ready to roll. So now, what I'm going to do is mix them up, and I'm going to now reach into one of these bags, and you, my friend, have to guess <laughs> that snack. Let's go. Here we go. <laughs> Okay, is this a Pringle, a Cheeto, a popcorn, or a tortilla chip? Here we go, mate. Listen closely. Tortilla chip. Yeah, straight <laughs> off, man. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Let's go. Here we go. I mean, that was there was no hesitation. That was almost innate. That was impressive skills, mate. I eat a lot of snacks, man. <laughs> right, okay. So one out of one. That's a very, very good start. Um, you're in the early breakaway, basically. Okay, next up. Now listen closely. Um, really, really concentrate, Justin. Okay, here we go. Cheeto. No, it's a no. It's not a Cheeto. I can't tell you what it is. It's not a Cheeto, mate. I'm sorry. <laughs> that sounded like a Cheeto. 
I know, I know the sec. Uh, my second guess, I can. Uh, can I say my second guess? Go on then. Go on then. My second guess was um was the popcorn. That well, okay, well, okay, because it's such a long way, and our voice has been beamed over the Atlantic Ocean. Let's factor that in. It was indeed a popcorn. So, oh nice. <laughs> I'm very kind. Um, I'll give you like a Joker card there, mate. So I like it. So next up, what is this? Okay, wait, wait, wait. what do we have left? Well, we have the we have the Cheeto and we have the uh, the Pringle, Pringle, right? Okay, yeah. perfect. So there's a real distinct difference between these two. So don't don't let yourself down now, uh, now Justin. Just think. And uh, again, if it's you know you, you'll hopefully you'll know. So here we go. It's, it's coming into my mouth now. Listen to the crunch, mate. That was a Cheeto for sure. It was a Cheeto, mate. Brilliant stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, where, where, Bennett, where are you at? <laughs> <laughs> and finally, just for the record, this is a Pringle. Here we go. Ah, oh, nice. Mm. nice. Mm. It's not it's not as poppy as a tortilla chip. It's 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 a little bit more subtle. Yeah, that's it. Do you know what? This guess guess this snack. I love it when whoever listens in can really describe and get across <laughs> the sound of and, and why it makes that sound. Some people have got super forensic on it. And, um, <laughs> yeah. And, and last week. here, okay? We're all about winning, okay? We want the dub. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was really funny. We did we just dropped the Cal Crutchlow podcast today, and I did it with Cal. And second second crunch in, he just said is this for real, Matt? <laughs> and I was like, oh no, is he going to just, is he just going to hang up? <laughs> but it was fine. It was good. But no, you did well though. So hundred percent with a little bit of help, but well done. Uh, yeah. Well done, Justin Williams. Congratulations. Yes, let's go. I'm excited. I'm good. Good stuff, mate. Well, it's, um, it's time to wrap things up. I mean, I was going to, I normally insert guest that a snack halfway through the podcast, but on this occasion, I thought I'd do it at the end because you were really on a roll, mate, and you've given us a, a really lovely insight into, into your career, where you are kind of now, what, you, what you're trying to do. And it just leaves me to say that um, if anybody's listened to this, get behind the team, um, you know, support them, follow them on social media. Whether you're in, if you're in America and you, and you kind of head up a business, get involved financially as well, because teams like this that, that give opportunities for young people, regardless of their background, is what this sport needs more of. Uh, it needs to kind of look at it with with a broader kind of view. And what you're doing, Justin, is fantastic. And it's and this is the first time we've ever spoken, so it's been a real, real pleasure to have you on. Oh man, I really appreciate it. Um, at the end of the day, you know, we've we've reinvested a lot of our personal money into like building something that's bigger and beyond us. And I think that when you have uh, the opportunity to help you, you always should, right? And and we're just trying to do our best to to give people kind of, you know, a little bit of what we had, we hadn't had, what we had a little bit of a- absence of. So, you know, we're just grateful to, that it's it's doing so well and we're going to continue to try to do our best to make it better for, for ourselves and for everyone. You know, at the end of the day, you know, me and Corey are on, me and Corey are doing this team because we didn't have a place to go, right? And I think that I think that people forget that sometimes. Like we're two of the best cyclists in America as far as like criterium racing and, and finishing. Uh, and we didn't have a home, so we made our own home. And and we yeah. were inviting everyone to come be a part of it. So yeah, yeah it's, it's a sh- it's a shame. I mean, in many ways, there's one way of looking at it. It's a wonderful thing that you're doing, but on the other hand, it's a shame that you've had to do it 
but the end result is still a good one. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. No, yeah. we're, we're more than grateful for everyone that supports. We're, we're grateful for our sponsors, all of them. They've done amazing, an amazing job of stepping up and really like supporting us blindly, you know, like in a way where they're like, they kind of understand what they're getting back. But yeah. at the end of the day, we're, what we're asking for is more than I think they're used to giving. So, you know, shout out to, to all of them. Great stuff. Well, Justin, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. I'll, I'll leave you to it because I keep forgetting it's very early in the morning. Go and grab <laughs> yourself a coffee and um, sure. and, uh, and have a great day and um, speak to you very soon, mate. Take yeah, care. Yeah, Well, if that doesn't make you want to get out for a bike ride, I don't know what will. Massive thanks, though, to Justin for taking the time to come on the podcast and so early in the morning as well. I wish him all the best for the coming season and hopefully we'll be back to some kind of normality soon so I can get over there and bask in his reflected glory. Thanks as ever to Perry Apgwyneth for the podcast theme tune and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe and rate the pod and why not recommend it to your cycling buddies or, if you have one, your uncle who runs his own barbershop in South Central LA. And finally, a massive thanks to Justin Williams for his inspirational attitude and for spending an hour of his precious time with us. Thanks all. See you soon.